Hi, my name is Melanie Marconi, serial entrepreneur, single mom, and founder and CEO of Vita, a co-working community designed to support modern life. I launched Vita two years ago while working and momming full-time, and it took true vision, lots of hard work, and a little bit of luck to make it a reality. Launching a new business or any other big goal or project while working, taking care of yourself, and raising small humans is an extraordinary achievement, but people do it all the time. And with some inspiration, resources, and advice from those who have been there, you can too. I created the Make Life Work podcast to share experiences from my own journey, as well as to learn from other women who are pursuing ambitious goals. Each week, we'll take an inside look at what drives us, why these projects are important, and how we structure our lives to make it all work. And now, on with the episode. Welcome to episode two of the Make Life Work podcast. Today, I'm really excited to be speaking with Tara Hurst currently the executive director of Renew Oregon, a leading advocacy group working toward a clean energy future here in the state of Oregon, and also a candidate for Portland City Council. I was really curious what candidacy looks like in the age of the coronavirus and also how she's making it work while also being a single mom to her son, Oliver. Here's the episode. Hope you enjoy. Hi, Tara. Thank you so much for joining us on the Make Life Work podcast. So happy to have you on. And I know that this is a different experience than we were expecting. I was <laughs> excited to welcome you into our podcast studio at Vita. Um, but here we are, both in our bedrooms. Yeah. Hey, second best place. Exactly. So, and how are things going for you? How is how was life during times of COVID-19? You know, it's an hourly... I feel like it's kind of hour by hour Um, and some days are definitely better than others. But at the end of the day, I have a job. I have a home. I'm able to put food on the table. I'm getting a steady paycheck. So I really, in that space, I'm really grateful to, to have what I have. I think that we, we need to stay resilient. Those of us who do have a paycheck and are lucky enough to have work still um, and, and, and housing need to stay really resilient so that for folks who do fall through the cracks and there's a lot of them that we're ready and we're, we're not kind of wallowing in that and going down into the deep, dark anxiety space. And that's where I'm trying to stay out of. Absolutely. Yes. And I feel like there is going to be, we already had some challenges to work through prior to COVID-19. There's going to be several more that are going to exacerbate it or, or add on top of it. So this really impacts your job and the job you are campaigning for as a member of the Portland City Council. So how has your campaign changed even just in the last two or three weeks? It's changed 100%. (laughs) So it's uh, (laughs) the week before the, you know, COVID happened, we started knocking on doors and talking to voters. And then I haven't been able to do that since. I was really stressed out about or apprehensive about running for office because I am a single mom. I am a sole provider. I still have a full-time job and this is another full-time job. And then I, I get to take care of my son. So that's another full-time job. Right. Um, we're up to three, three, four up to jobs. three jobs. And so I was really, you know, when my son and I were deciding if I should do this, it was really about, you know, I'm not going to be around at night. I'm not going to be around on the weekends, which he was totally fine with as a 13-year-old boy. Right. But I was really nervous about that. And so 
one of the silver linings, I guess, is that I'm less, uh, I am busy, but I'm not away from home and I am able to be here and, and to be with him in a way that I wouldn't have been able to, to campaign. Right. Um, he's been my biggest cheerleader through this whole process. And it's really, I think it's meant a lot to him that I'm running and to watch me run and to, to kind of take that leap of faith. And he's the one that's just been kind of there by my side the whole time. Um, and I'm grateful on just in that realm. I'm kind of grateful that things have changed. Other than that, it's been really frustrating. We can call voters, but you can't go face to face. And I'm much more of a extrovert and somebody who really loves the energy of other people. Mm -hmm. um, so I think if I was an introvert running, this would be amazing. Right. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, those are probably some of uh, people's other concerns when they're running. But I miss being able to kind of read a room and be around people and and kind of having those conversations and, and those are so limited. So, yeah. Well, and I, I know that you're, you're running on a platform of creating the sense of community amongst Portlanders. Like we do have this really unique and robust community here in Portland. And from what I understand about your campaign, it's that you want to take the best elements of that and really bring it to life and really bring us all together. And so it almost offers a really interesting opportunity for you to do that with tools and ways that we have never even considered during a campaign. So what are those kind of tools that you are using in this online community building environment? Because we're, we're doing some of it at Vita too, right? We brought all of our programming online. We're working to connect people in the ways that we can. But for a campaign, it's, it's a different environment. Yeah, I think we're still trying to, you know, I had a virtual house party last night. And that was an interesting way to be in front of people. It's not as good as being in a living room, but it was still nice to like be able to talk to people and make sure that what I'm, my vision for the future of Portland is resonating with others because you start feeling like you're in a vacuum a little bit and right. you're just talking to yourself. And so it's nice to to get that reaffirmation that yes, we are all kind of in this space and and you're absolutely right. I do want to see I think Portland is one of the most uh, unique and strong components of Portland is the the sense of community and and uniqueness and kind of wanting to do it on our own and that's what I think will get us through COVID. You know, I love the the imagination and kind of the creativity and just the amount of people who jumped up the minute this happened and said, I'm here. What do you need? Like my next door feed is filled with, I'm at home, I'm here, I'm available to help. And that's the spirit of Portland, right? right. And yep. one of the problems with our spirit is that we all like being in our parks. And I think they had to take us another step back and be like, yeah, you can go for walks, but we don't want to see you all sitting around on a blanket together. And you know, those are the spaces we're walking around, we're smile, you know, we're, we're, we're engaging with people in ways that we haven't been able to engage with folks because everybody's been running a mile a minute. And so one of the things that we're doing is really, you know, just keeping an eye on what's going on and who needs what and trying to connect people with services. I got to go volunteer at Street Roots one Friday and 
talk about gratitude, you know, watching folks line up for hours just to be able to receive a stipend that Street Roots is, you know, dedicated to making sure that their vendors are going to make it through this and get the information they need. It it reminds you of the community spirit and, and how much we take care of each other, but it also shows the ugliness of just how far away we are from really taking care of Portlanders and making sure that everybody's thriving in our city. So, you know, we're, we're trying all sorts of things to get in front of voters and to talk to folks. But I think at the end of the day, it's just going to be mostly your traditional means of calling people on the phones and getting volunteers to make phone calls. And, you know, I think we just got our lawn signs and that's been kind of fun because I, I went and delivered them. I was so anxious to do something Right. And I went and delivered them and, you know, got to see some of my friends and, and colleagues on their porch while I was putting a lawn sign in their yard and forgot how much I missed that human connection. Right. Um, just seeing faces. Just seeing faces <laughs> yeah. and smiles and how hard it is to not just run up and hug people and how awkward it is when you see somebody that you really do adore and care about and you have to keep this like kind of you know, um, stiff presence so that you don't go just run over and hug them. Yeah. Yeah. I did the same thing last night. I went to visit like one of my best friends and her daughter and it was so weird. Just the distance it's, it's Mm -hmm. palpable how, when you have to stay away from somebody. It's strange. It's yeah. It's such an interesting time. Well, and meanwhile, you talking about your second full-time job, you are the executive director of Renews Oregon and it's an advocacy organization that campaigns for clean energy. Is that, mm-hmm. correct? Is that how you yep. describe it? So how, how is this being impacted or how, how is your job looking right now? Are you, is your team still intact? Is, is the work there moving forward at all? Are things on pause? Yeah, so we, we were extremely fortunate, which if anybody who's followed our history would know that that has not been the case so far. <laughs> we work on climate and had been pushing the Cap and Invest bill for the last three years in the legislative session. And that's just been really hard. And, you know, this last short session ended with the Republicans walking out again and killing our bill. And, you know, one of the things that we had been working on and the reasons we agreed to try one more time, other than the fact that we're fighting for our future, we have 10 years till our climate spate is sealed, and it's critical that we do everything we can. And this is not only for climate, but it's also a really, it would have been a really huge boost for our economy as well, is that we were also working with the governor's office to make sure that if we didn't get a bill this session and we did everything we possibly could that she would be willing to use all the tools in her toolbox and pass something through executive authority. Oh wow! And we knew that if we didn't continue down this road in good faith and really do everything we possibly could, that that was probably, we would probably lose that. So Tuesday, I was trying to remember the date because everything is kind of <laughs> off, but I think it was, the first, it was that first Tuesday after the session, so it must have been the 10th or 11th, the governor did a signing of this executive order that is the most broadest, boldest climate action the state's ever taken. And that was because of all of our hard work and the work of a statewide coalition that was so broad. You know, we had 30 to 40 
organizations, over 15,000 people, 890 businesses, 230 farms and ranches signed on. So it was a really broad coalition. Um, And we finally saw all of our hard work in black and white. And she signed it and we had a bunch of youth. My son was there and it was extremely satisfying. Congratulations. Uh, And so, you know, we keep, my team and I keep kind of reflecting on, wow, what if she had done it, she was planning on doing it at the end of the The week. Next week, right, exactly. Even Wednesday or Thursday probably would have been, she had gotten one question from the reporter of, don't you think this is irresponsible or whatever for doing this during COVID? And she said, no, obviously. But she probably wouldn't have been able to do it past that and needed to really focus her attention, but we were right before that. Right. Wow. And that is something that we will forever be grateful for. So now we're setting up the next steps and kind of the next table to make sure that the implementation and the rulemaking, which is not all that sexy, but it's the most important component of passing big policy, is making sure that it gets implemented well. And industry usually shows up with about 30 lawyers and then there's one of us. And so we're really trying to change that dynamic and make sure that we're in much better shape to push for strong climate outcomes. But it is substantial. And, you know, our team has already been talking about a transition once we pass the bill. And now that we've passed an executive order, the shape of Renew will change. And that's been the, that's just been kind of where we've been headed, which is great. It means that we've done some, we've done the work. This episode of the Make Life Work podcast is supported by the University of Oregon's Executive MBA program. This 20-month program is designed for those with very full lives who are also seeking advancement in their careers. I was excited to chat more with Becca Yates, a recent graduate of the Oregon Executive MBA program and currently the Director of Corporate Strategy, Stakeholder Engagement, and Communications for the Northwest Energy Efficiency Alliance. After Becca realized an MBA was the right next step for her, she spent five years researching nationwide programs. And I was curious, why did she choose the University of Oregon? And the Oregon Executive MBA program talked to me about what they do to help make sure that that I'd be successful in this program. Once you're in, they're committed to your success and your learning. They're not trying to test your resiliency. And that that was a big thing for me as a mom and someone who's working full time. If you want to learn more about an MBA program that is committed to your success as you are, please visit business.uoregon.edu slash executive MBA. Well, these are some pretty big, big projects that you're working on in jobs <laughs> one and two, and, and your full-time job number three is, you know, hand in hand with what you're doing during your workday. And I think what we are always curious to hear about is literally how you make life work. So what kinds of timelines and routines and practices do you put in place for you and your son to be able to achieve the goals and the commitments that you've made in your day job with the goals and commitments that you have to your son and to your family and to yourself to be able to be a leader both in the workplace and at home. And and maybe, you know, talk a little bit about what that looked like prior to life right now, but then also what it looks like today because we have to change all of those things to support what's happening right now. You know, I think one of the things that I'm really grateful for, there's a couple of things that worked when I got separated. My son was eight 
and we moved to the house that we're in. And it, I had told the my realtor, I said, if you can find me something like within three blocks of the school that's small and the layout works, I'm in. And she found something a block, not even a block away. It's like a two doors down from his school. And I don't know how I would be able to work had it not been for that. Because before we'd been schlepping from Northeast Portland. And even though it was only three miles, it took 35 to 45 minutes just to get him to school and then aftercare. And he was just starting to get to that age where we didn't need aftercare as much, um, you know, once he hit 10. And there's a couple of things that I have done for myself, which both takes care of me and my son, I think, is I've limited the high expectations of being a perfect, what Instagram tells us is a perfect parent and what, you know, Hollywood has always told us what a perfect parent looks like. To me, you know, I was raised by a single mom. She was not available or around much at all. But the thing that she gave me was unconditional love. And and I feel that to today, right? Even though she left us for weekends and she did a lot of questionable, made a lot of questionable choices and did not prioritize us. And so for me, it's really about making sure he knows that he's a priority and making sure that he knows that he's safe and that he's loved. Yep. And we don't try and do elaborate projects. I don't do elaborate birthdays. I take him to uh, wild waves in uh, Tacoma every year for his birthday with his best friend. And those sound simple, but to me, that's really what keeps me feeling centered is not feeling like I have to keep up with everybody else. I think there are people who genuinely love doing the arts and crafts and being really creative with their kid and their kids love it too. We're not that family. We are not either. Yeah. And it's totally fine. And I think it's that like letting go of expectations and just, are we, are we treating each other with kindness for the most part? (laughs) Are we, do we feel loved and supported and how can I, you know, show up for him? And he knows that I have his back and that I'm his rock and that I will never leave him. And I think that that's how I'm able to manage having these high pressure, high stakes jobs that I take because that's where I thrive. And also him knowing that, you know, I'm, I'm out there fighting, literally fighting for his future and to make sure that he does have a future and that I really care. And when I decided or thought about running for city council and, and when I talked to him about it, he was just, he was like, I'm not going to let you give up on yourself. I'm not going to let you back down on this. You know, you are going. And every time I'd come home with my, I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> this is really scary. He'd say, no, I'm not letting you give up on yourself. So I feel really lucky to have the kid that I have. And I feel really lucky to have been brought up and told that I don't have to be a perfect mom or whatever. A perfect mom doesn't always, there is no perfect mom. No. And being honest about our struggles and I'm pretty much an open book. So I I do think that it's important to talk to friends and talk to our colleagues and let them know that we are all struggling and that the struggle is real. It's hard. It's so hard. You know, and I say all that and I still have plenty of moments of feeling like I'm, I hate that for before we were in COVID, he would come home and be alone for three and a half, four hours until I got home from work. And, you know, 
those are the components that are the trade-offs. And I don't think he'd want me to do any job other than the jobs that I do. And, you know, I do the best that I can. And, and I think that he and I are such a strong team. Yeah. Yeah. That resonates so deeply with me. I'm in, you know, very similar situation. I also was raised by a single mom. I had a sister growing up and now I'm primary parent raising my daughter. And for the most part, it's me and her, you know, we're, we're a team and she's got plenty of support and a lot of other great people. But at the end of the day, the decisions I make directly impact her and we're a little bit in it together. And sometimes I struggle with that. My daughter's seven, your son's a little bit older because you, you almost have to overshare and over discuss your life and what's happening because they're the one there. There's not another partner or other children or robust extended family. And so, you know, I do struggle with that sometimes even b- before I opened Vita and Ellie was six, I think. And I'm like, I'm going to be opening this new business. It's going to take more of my time. I'm still going to have to work my, you know, my other job. And, but I think there's something to that transparency and openness with your kids to a degree. I'm sure there's a point, you know, past no return that allows for this buy-in and allows for them to see that the choices we make, how they impact us and them and the the greater world and that there's something really important to that. So I love how you're including him and and even your campaign and and just the the choices that you're making in your life. My ex-husband and I met and his dad met in recovery mm-hmm. and he relapsed. And so when Elliot was eight, we I found out that he had relapsed and it was a total shock to our whole family system. And for Elliot, it was a shock because he didn't know that we were recovering alcoholics and addicts because it didn't feel like that was the time yet, right? At eight wasn't the age that I was going to talk to him about it. I was definitely going to talk to him about it. But he ended up having to learn all of these things. And we were lied to for three years. And so Mm -hmm. what that does to a kid is, uh, is really profound. And what it's created with us is probably an overshare because of that trust that was just completely broken. How do you start building trust back with adults and grownups in your life? I mean, there was one point where he looked at me and he said, well, who am I going to stay with when you relapse? Right. And it was trying to explain that, you know, God willing, I won't relapse. And, and this is, you know, yes, it's part of the disease of alcoholism, but it doesn't have to be. Um, something that we do. And it was a really scary time for for him and for me. And and so now I really err on the side of, all right, (laughs) I want to make sure that you feel like you can trust me and you know what's going on. And this is the deal. Wow. I mean, such parallels. Uh, Same same exact experience for me and my daughter um, with her father. And addiction and recovery is such, I mean, probably a, another topic for a whole episode, but the the impact that that also has on, mm-hmm. you know, grownups and kids and family structures and the community in general is just profound. And it was the same situation with my daughter. We, you know, hadn't really had the opportunity to talk about her dad's history because it just didn't, she didn't know. She was, you know, little enough to not have to ride those waves in the same way that I have. But right before her seventh birthday, same thing happened. And so these, these conversations about and trust and 
decision making and mm-hmm. how it doesn't make you a bad person and how things can come back and you can work towards something. It's it's these really profound conversations. And I think that when you have to have those conversations with kids at a young age, it really does create a different sense of relationship between parent and child. And it does create this team team mm-hmm. mentality, I think, in a way. So mm-hmm. um, I appreciate you sharing your story. And I think that it's actually a lot more common than most people recognize. It definitely does not show up on Instagram, in the parenting, the perfect parenting hashtags, but it's definitely pervasive and out there. And kudos to you. Earlier, we heard from Becca about how the Oregon Executive MBA program was designed to set her up for success. But I was also curious how she was able to go to school during the weekends and take care of herself and her family at the same time. Particularly for people like me who were balancing family commitments, kids programs, sporting events, it meant that I could be still present with my family on those weekends. To learn more about how you can gain the skills and network you need to launch your big idea or advance your career, or just find out what your next career step might be, like Becca, search online for Oregon Executive MBA in Portland. And now, back to the show. One of the reasons I share is because when Elliot, when we were going through this and his dad was in rehab, he went up to his librarian at school and told her that my dad's in rehab. And he didn't know that there's stigma around addiction at the time. He found out really quickly because her face just kind of, you know, dropped. And I don't blame her at all. I think it was probably a shocking thing to hear a kid say, right? Fourth grader. But I want to change that because then it became known that you don't talk about it. You don't disclose that. That is a shameful subject. And that is a secret that parents keep, right? Right. And the spiral just goes. And it's a spiral and it makes you feel really lonely and othered in a way that is really dangerous for youth. And that's, you know, um, when I decided to run and I, and he knows all about my history. So it wasn't even people were like, or is he going to be okay if, if you talk about this? And I was like, oh, he knows everything. I mean, not everything, but he knows enough where there is nothing that would be shocking to him or hurt him in public. And you know, I think that to me, that's one of the most important things about running is to really make sure that people do hear other people talking about recovery, talking about, yeah, I had a really dark past and I hurt a lot of people and I'm here today to make sure that I'm in service of others who are trying to get clean and sober. And our systems are broken right now for people who want to get in recovery. And if I had not had access to detox and treatment, I wouldn't be here today. I would be I would be dead. And so that's real. And right. and that's the stuff that I'm trying to make it so that he can feel proud of having two parents who are in recovery. Yeah, I did notice that a lot of you do carry that front and center in your campaign and in your life. And I think it's rare to see that. And it's also very important to see that this is just part of who you are. And it's also almost another job, I would imagine, not in the same way, but a job originally to work through it. And then I'm sure there's some self-care and practices that you take on on a daily basis to maintain sobriety and keep yourself like safe and strong. Would you be willing to talk about some of your 
self-care type practices that keep you moving along? <laughs> I feel like recovery has really prepared me for COVID. (laughs) And I feel really lucky about that because, you know, when I was getting clean and sober, there was so many times where somebody would say, I'd be either saying, I don't know if, you know, I can stay sober and get married sober. That's crazy. Like, I don't even know what that looks like because I was 20 when I got clean and they'd say, okay, but can you stay clean today? And I would say, yeah, I could do that. Right. And they'd say, okay, can you meet me at this meeting tomorrow at 530? Yeah, I can do that. It's about bite size. It's about not, um, you know, this too shall pass. I was, there's a tattoo place on the corner of 34th and Hawthorne right near my house. And, and they spray painted on it right now, this too shall pass, which is a very prominent AA and NA slogan which really literally is if you can just wait long enough, whatever you're feeling right now will pass. And so the anxiety that I'm hearing from a lot of people and the feelings of of powerlessness, that's literally how you get clean and sober and recovery is all about admitting that you're powerless over something and that your life was unmanageable, right? And so all of those slogans that I held on to for dear life for the first couple of years or five years of my recovery are all coming back to me right now of if I start going down of like, what's the economic situation going to be in six months? How many people are going to be devastated? How are we ever going to get out of this? I will spiral out of control. But if I can say, can I make it through today? And like, can I keep my son safe? And can I do the next right thing today? Yeah. Okay. I can do that. I don't know how long this is going to last. And I have no control over how long this is going to last. Right. So it's the serenity prayer, accept the things you cannot change and the courage to um, change the things that you can and the wisdom to know the difference. What can I change? I can change my attitude. I can change my outlook. I can make sure that, you know, I'm eating and I'm sleeping and I'm taking care of my kids. Right. Um, And that I'm exercising. And what can't I change? How long this goes? How many people are, you know who falls victim to this. And that's the stuff that I think is so helpful right now, because I truly believe that it's going to be up to people to be resilient, like I said before. And if we can be resilient and get through this and be on the other side and not kind of let it take us down, for those of us who do have a paycheck and have a house, we can help everybody else who need to be able to just fall apart. And that's really important. And that's part of also the service that, you know, AA and recovery teaches you is, is that you, you don't get to keep what you have without giving it away. And that's what we're going to need to do. We're going to need to be of service to other people. And we're going to need to really rally together and create the community that we want and not act out of fear, but act out of intention and compassion about how we want our community to look after this. Like it's, I won't read the bat, the news right now in terms of just kind of what the latest stupid thing or offensive thing that Trump said or what he's doing or not doing because it's not going to change what happens right now and it will definitely change my mental health. Absolutely. I am in the same boat. Some of the decisions that we you know, collectively made as a society or individually made or there's not anything we can do about that right now. And I love that phrase that you just said that I've been hearing a lot, and I think it is um, recovery-based, is just do the next right best thing, or I'm probably Mm -hmm. 
chopping yeah. that up inappropriately, but that that kind of resonates in my mind too. That that's that's the power that we have. That's the control that we have is choosing our own actions and the next steps that we're taking. And I actually think that that is the mantra of life and of doing anything big, you know, COVID or no COVID, that's what you can do. And so when we talk about being able to do big things in life or do big projects or have three full-time jobs and run for a, you know, political seat or, or open a new business, it's, it's keeping that frame of mind all the time to just do the next right best mm-hmm. thing for the vision and the goal that you're trying to achieve. And so I think that you are really a beautiful embodiment of that and really have made some wonderful choices. And I know that that's your hope for the city of Portland as well. It, is, it reminds me of uh, Dory <laughs> that just keeps swimming. It's a yep. little bit of <laughs> the finding Nemo of just keep swimming, just keep swimming. And that I, Although we have come to a crashing halt and there's no gratitude for what's happening to our economy and what's happening in our world, what it is doing is creating a space where we have a chance to really look at what the choices as a collective we've made and how to change it and how to be kind and how to take care of each other. And I I do have hope that we come out of this stronger because we are seeing the evisceration of kind of the foundations that we have. And a lot of us have seen that before and have been fighting and working on the front lines. But a lot of people, if it hadn't affected them, just hadn't seen it necessarily. And you're just seeing the layoffs and the, and the choices that we've made and we have to do better. Yeah, agreed. And I have hope for it too. I'm a, I'm an internal optimist, as those who know me know. Yeah. I think you have to be in order to do you know some of these things that we've chosen to do. But I think if we can look at it through the right lens and be appreciative of what we have and be helpful for those who don't, we can all come through this together and really make it out beautifully on the other end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw one that said, "Don't think about the apocalypse." at the end of this, but think about the revolution that this will start. And I think that that is a great way of thinking about it. It really is flipping it on the other side of what do we want after this? Yeah. I love that. I love Mm -hmm. that. That one was, that felt good. I was like, yeah, I know exactly the revolution I want to see coming out of this. Exactly. And we need, we need people who can see the the revolution on the other end of this because yeah, those are the change makers that are going to going to take us through. We need some leadership right now. That's for sure. Yeah, we do. Yes, we do. Well, Tara, thank you so much. This has been like such a lovely conversation and kind of zigzagged into ways that were, you know, you never know, but I I love this kinds of conversation. So I appreciate your vulnerability and transparency and I wish you and your campaign all the best. I really um, appreciate what, what you're trying to do for our community. Thank you. And thank you so much for hosting us right before all of it happened. So Vita is a beautiful co-working space. And I hope that y'all are able to go back there soon. Thank you. Me too. Me too. Until then, we'll be on all the interwebs as I know you are too. And maybe you can come bring me a lawn sign. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) All right. Well, take care of you and your son. I hope both are well and healthy and have an ease for the next few weeks or months as we work through this. We'll get through it. Thank you. All right. Take care, Tara. Care. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Make Life Work podcast. This episode was recorded at my home podcast studio. 
but usually we record on site at the Vita Coworking Community in Northeast Portland. This season is made possible by our friends at the University of Oregon Executive MBA program. Go Ducks! For show notes and other resources from this week's episode, please visit vitacoworking.com slash podcast. Have a great week and see you next time. Thank you.